I really am grateful to see every one of you this morning. And I'm grateful because we have the blessing of hearing words breathed out by God. Words of life this morning. What a blessing that is. You know, yesterday, walking with us in the parade was Joel from Brooks, Alberta. And he was carrying a cross. And I asked him to, and he was willing, which was great. But if you know what a cross is, it was a bit of a contrast with the fun and the candy and the smiles all around us. And yet it is the cross, that bloody instrument of torture. That's what a cross is. Don't need to sugarcoat it, make it a little nice little thing to put on a necklace. It's an instrument of death. But it is that cross that symbolizes the way of the Christian. The way in which we're to walk. The path of our Lord and Master. We're journeying along with Jesus' disciples in Mark's Gospel this year. And midway through Mark chapter 8, we come to a fork in the road here. Up to this point, the disciples have really been coming to grips with Jesus' identity. Coming to see Him as Lord, as the Messiah, their promised Deliverer who would come and deliver the people of God. They've seen His power. And they've come to worship Him and to trust Him but they have yet to understand His mission. And from this point on, Jesus and His disciples will walk the road to Jerusalem where Jesus will give His life on the cross for the sins of His disciples. And He calls them to walk The same path. The way of the cross. And so we can go with the majority view of the people around us. We, we can. We can follow the masses. Or we can follow the Master. That's the choice laid before us. The only path that leads to life is the path of following Jesus Christ. And the call of Jesus isn't to come and have coffee and chit-chat with Him. God isn't interested in just our spare time. Just our leftovers, you know. The one day a week kind of thing. He wants all of you and I. We cannot enter into Christ's kingdom 
without walking His path, without walking the path that He sets before us. And the journey may seem painful and slow, but it is the way of the Master that is the way to life. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8, going to be covering verses 22 to 38. As is our custom, we're going to break up the text and uh, read it as we go. So we'll first read verses 22 to 26. This healing that Jesus does really sets the stage. It is parallel with the text that follows. It offers us an illustration of what we will see happening. Verse 22 to 26 of Mark chapter 8. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. But they looked like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Right away, as you read these verses, you, you'll notice this was a unique healing. This is a different than the vast majority of those that we have read about in Mark's Gospel. On a few other occasions, Jesus uses mud or, and or spit. And he applies it to a blind man's eyes and that sort of thing. But in those accounts, the healing occurs immediately. This is the only two-stage healing, we'll call it, that Jesus does. And Jesus specifically asks him the first time, do you see anything? It's like, no, well, I can kind of see, but it's not very clear. People look blurry, like trees. Jesus lays his hand on him again, and he can see clearly. The repetition there, he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So just to understand that this was a restoration of full sight. But the uniqueness here alerts us to the fact that this Miracle was done for a distinct purpose. When we read the account in its context, we find it actually takes place between two accounts of the disciples' blindness to the truth. 
The disciples' blindness when they they saw Jesus feeding the multitudes. And yet they did not understand what Jesus was talking about. And now. A different kind of blindness to come. As the disciples understand something of Jesus. But they don't get. His mission. They don't get that He came to die, to suffer for them. This healing reveals to us, it pictures for us our need for spiritual sight. We need the Lord's healing that we would see Him clearly. And we need not just a, a partial sight, but a full sight. Not just a bit of a glimpse, but to see the fullness of who Christ is. And so just as the blind man sees but needs Jesus to restore his sight fully, So also Peter in the following passage sees Jesus is the Christ, but he must learn what this means. We need to know who Jesus is, but we also need to understand the implications of this in our lives. I want to pick up the text of Mark's Gospel in verse 27. And read to to verse 30. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, others, one of the prophets. And He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This proclamation of the truth is recognized as the center of Mark's gospel account. Christ is unveiled. For his his disciples, they they recognize him for who he is. That he is the one appointed and empowered by God to deliver and rule his people. That he would be their Savior and their Lord. And this was in fulfillment of all the promises of God. But as Lord, find something interesting here. Jesus gives a strict order not to tell anyone about him. Not to tell them what they have come to understand. The mystery will not be kept secret forever. 
but it was to be kept secret until he would accomplish what he came to do. And from here, the disciples' journey on the way to Jerusalem becomes one of learning what Jesus came to accomplish. What does it mean that He is the Messiah? What are the implications of Him being Lord? Of Him being the Deliverer promised by God? Why did He come? And what is required to be His disciple? Jesus began to teach them, verse 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And He said this plainly. We'll pause there. He spoke plainly to them now about His purpose. They acknowledged Him as Christ. And He now taught them what He came to do. Why did Jesus come? He came to suffer. To be rejected. He came to be killed. And He came to rise again. This is the Gospel. That He, the innocent one, would die as a substitute, paying the penalty for the sins of whoever would believe in Him. That He would satisfy the wrath of God that we have earned that wage. He would die that death that we deserve. So that The one whose faith is in Christ, one who's called by God, might enter his kingdom. This is good news. And it was prophesied of old. It's prophesied in places such as Isaiah, chapters 52 and 53. This would be a man who would be marred, who would be unrecognizable. His glory would be veiled. He would be rejected and killed. Bruised. Crushed for our iniquities. Our sin. But this wasn't the picture of the Christ the disciples had of Jesus. They know He's the Christ. He's shown the power and wisdom of God time and time again. But this they weren't expecting. The Deliverer must die. The glorious Son of Man who would conquer the nations and rule over all His people will be rejected and humiliated 
Peter, the spokesman of our group of the disciples, the same man who said you're the Christ has something to say here as well. He steps out of line and he rebukes his master. Continuing in verse 32. Jesus said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus calls him Satan. Because his thoughts were completely in line with God's adversary. Because he spoke the same kind of counsel as the the father of lies. Opposes the plan of God. That the Messiah would save his people. Jesus explains to us that Peter's thinking was not focused on the things of God, but ruled by the things of man. He was thinking in terms of what men taught, not what his Lord said. quite something when you begin to read all of the views of the Messiah at that time from all of the people of, of Israel, the Jewish people and the rabbis. Many opinions. But when the Lord Himself tells us who He is and what He comes to do and what He calls us to, will we listen to Him? Peter's ideas of Jesus were shaped by his world and by his wants. He didn't want his Messiah to die. He didn't understand how that could possibly lead to life and victory and hope. That kept him from accepting the very words of his Lord. And so he found himself in this place in opposition to God, where just a few moments before uh, this same account in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that this is God who revealed to you that I'm the Christ. Here he is choosing the world's way of thinking. God's anointed shouldn't suffer. Rather than God's revealed purposes that he will suffer for his people and that the salvation of of the people of God will come through that suffering and that death on our behalf. We might easily be tempted to think this is just a unique experience. Only Peter was that stubborn and stupid to do something like that, right? But this is an all too common reality in the Christian church. People say that Jesus is Lord, just like Peter did, but don't obey what he says. That's what it means to have a master. 
you listen to him, you follow him. Instead of resisting the world's way of thinking, we think the world's thoughts. The deliverer can't suffer and die. A loving God wouldn't send such a nice person to hell. My fill in the blank, that's not sin. My pride, we wouldn't even call it pride. I think I'm such a good guy. Fill in the blank with what people will excuse when God says, no, you're not going my way. You're following your own desires. Doing what you want to do. Here's another one. Christians shouldn't suffer. That's the world's way of thinking. But did our Lord suffer? Yes. And so we will, if we follow Him, and the list could go on. We could think of other things that the world says, but we must put ourselves behind Christ. He's our master. We don't lead Jesus. He's not subject to our whims and our fancies and our ideas of the way that our life should go. He's not your pet dog. So when God reveals that His will is the way of the cross, we must submit to His will. Did you know that Jesus submitted joyfully to the will of His Father? That He came on purpose to suffer and die, to pour out His kindness on His chosen people, those whom He loves so dearly. So too, we're called to submit to God with joy. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 34. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says these words to anyone who would desire to follow Christ. This is Christ's gospel call. Good news for you. Now we didn't say, let's see, pray a prayer. You'll have an abundant life and a ticket to heaven. That's it. That's a false hope. Jesus offers true hope in Himself, in His suffering and in His death. We who would trust in Him completely giving up on ourselves entirely. Be the ones who know life. Jesus offers life to the one who firstly denies himself, 
Secondly, takes up his cross. And third, follows Christ. These build on each other. They overlap. They fill out the picture of what it is to live the Christian life. The true believer follows their Lord. So let's unpack the call of Christ for a moment. First, denying self. Denying self is giving up ultimate authority over our life. It's saying that Jesus is boss and and living that way. Saying, thy will be done. And seeking not just a part of Christ, not just a little bit, but all of Christ for all of life. Keith Green expresses the heart of a true disciple in many of his songs. Did the math. He died in a plane crash with some of his children and a few others uh, 15 years before I was born. But he had an impact on my life and it comes through in his songs, his, his heart. One of his songs, Make My Life a Prayer to You, the lyrics read, I want to do what you want me to. No empty words and no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. How many times do we offer Jesus, just a little bit, eh? How easy it is to say words, but not to be willing, but to compromise when it suits us. Self-denial says that there are no compartments that are held back for me and for mine. A little bit of my money. Well, I'm going to keep some of my family back to me. I need whatever it is. Get me wrong. The things that God gives us are good gifts from Him. But if they get in the way of following Jesus, we have a problem. To be willing to say no to myself and to my ways. Are there areas of your life that are held back from God? Are you willing, for example, to obey God when it will upset someone you care about? Are you willing to follow Christ even if He gives you Some chronic difficulty, trouble, illness? What if you don't see any visible fruit for the time and energy you spend sharing the gospel? It may take time. 
We may not see what we want to see. But remember, as we'll see, this is the way to life. This can be a joyful thing to give up on yourself because it is the Lord who saves you. And it is the Lord who keeps you. There's freedom in this. But if self-denial sounds hard, the image of taking up your cross is an even harder saying. For some reason, come and die a terrible death chock full of suffering doesn't cut it for most advertising. It's not what we like to say. But the truth, if you truly want to follow Jesus, is that people will make fun of you. They will accuse you. They will laugh at you. We can think of worse things that have been done to those that followed Jesus and wouldn't compromise. But obeying God is not appreciated in our culture. Sure, if you keep it to yourself, nobody will have a problem. Right? But disagree with people. Tell them the truth about sin, something that God says, and do it with the gentlest tone and with genuine concern for their souls, and they'll, they'll say, you hate me, and you're just violent, whatever. But Jesus says, follow me. Don't care about what they think, what they say. Follow me. And we must go the way He chooses, not the way we want. Or the way the crowd thinks. But here's the wonderful thing. This is what our memory verse talks about. Jesus invites us all, if we're willing to trust Him, to hear the truth for whoever, verse 35 of Mark 8, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels? The truth is that the only way to gain life is to lose your life. Is to give it to the Lord. And this will mean walking the way of the cross. It's only through Jesus Christ who suffered and died for the sins of His people that we could have life in Him. Without the cross, without real nails, real bloodshed, 
by a real man, the God-man, we would have nothing. And so how true it is that when we are willing to lose our life to gain Christ, that is the best investment you could ever make. The loss of your life, giving up the rule of your life, is a small thing to gain Christ. when we do that, when we offer ourselves to Him completely, we don't need to be ashamed of Jesus or what He says. We can stand blameless and pure in the sight of God because of what Jesus has done. And we don't need to be ashamed and we don't need to be afraid of what somebody else thinks He is Lord. I have to ask us, myself included, you who say Jesus is Lord, how do you practically live under Jesus' Lordship? How is it evident in our lives? It's been rightly said before, if Christ is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all. If Christ is not Lord of every part of you and your life, can you really claim Him as Lord? Could He not say, Lord, I never knew you, or I never knew you when we say, Lord, Lord. When we say Jesus is Lord, He ought to have the first place in everything that we do or say. So it is good to think about what we do in our daily life. How do we honor Him? How do I prioritize worshiping Christ in my home with my family? How do I honor Him at work? Those that I, I work with. Do I think of the Lord at all when I have my playtime, my me time? If, if some of you got that, I don't know. <laughs> I've learned with kids that shrinks. And uh, that's a test of whether you're willing to sacrifice, whether you're willing to give to your kids. And you have less time to do what you want to do.
What about this? What about when there's a cross to bear? Are you willing to be laughed at for following Jesus? Are you willing to be called violent for agreeing with God that there are only two genders, male and female? I know that's maybe a hot topic these days, but it's a very clear example where we have a choice to follow what our God says or to do what is pleasing to man. Whatever the issue is, whatever the topic is, will you accept what God says even when it's unpopular? When it may seem a bit uncomfortable, a harder truth. I have to confess, I really haven't always been willing to do that. I can think of times, specific times, where maybe I didn't outright say something wrong, but you just kind of better shut your mouth, right? There might be a place for being quiet. That there is certainly a place for being clear, standing on the Word of God. And as I see the goodness of Christ my King, that He would suffer and die for my sins, man, I am much bolder. When I take my eyes off of the cross, I am not willing to walk that path. I go my own way. I can tell you from Scripture, Matthew, read Matthew 6, 20-24, and from experience that your Master will always be evident in your choices. Jesus said, You cannot serve two masters. That's Matthew chapter 6. Jesus calls you and I to give it all up. To follow Him. And following Jesus will cost you today or in this life at some point. Maybe not equally at every time in your life. Praise God for all the great blessings and the way that He, he uh, just is so gracious to protect us from evil. But what you'll gain in giving up your life is far better. Kids, Learn that now. How much better it is to serve Jesus. He's the one who died, gave his life, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So he's worth giving up everything.
And it's His way. The way of the Master. That's the only way to life.